from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. I love, Jemiah, that you have your daughter in the garden with you. Like, that touched my heart. But she's adorable, let me me tell you. But I agree. I found pictures, and I agree. (laughs) Very adorable. Yeah, she's adorable. Oh, my goodness. And did you just see her helping you in the garden? Yes, yes. There are many times, you know, she finds her own philosophies from the garden, too. She's like, when we're upset about something, she's like, Daddy, maybe we go to the garden. (laughs) You know, she understands how the mental health plays into it. Like, she'll explore foods. She discovered that you can eat some of these callaloo seeds just directly. So she goes for it right away. I didn't even know it. You know, children can teach us so, so much. What's up, everybody? I'm Gammy, and this is Positively Gam. Every week, I try to have raw and in-depth conversation with inspirational people pushing for change on everything from aging, relationships, politics, wellness, to the current issues facing the Black community. In this episode, we're going to be discussing food inequities in the inner cities and communities and in our schools. This week's guests are Jemiah E. Hargens and Ashley C. Ford. Jemiah is an entrepreneur and founder of CropSwap LA. CropSwap unites gardeners across Los Angeles to grow and share their extra produce with each other and the community. Beside him, we have Ashley. She is a writer, host, and educator. Her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, will be out on June 1st of 2021. And you can check out the lovely piece she wrote on Vice President-elect Kamala Harris 
that is in the November edition of Elle magazine. Ashley is the host of the podcast, The Chronicles of Now, and co-host of the HBO podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. Without Lovecraft Country, I wouldn't know what was going on in Lovecraft. Let me just tell you, Lovecraft is one of my favorite shows, but it, you know, I really, really needed your help. And I didn't even realize in the beginning I was fine. But then as things went on, I was like, wait a minute, there's, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of meaningful stuff going on here that I think I'm missing. So thank you guys for that. And I have to tell you that when the, the, the show returns, we will have to have you back on. I'll be back whenever you want me to come back, Gammy. It could be about Lovecraft Country or Yellow Sweaters. I'll be back to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for saying that. I had so much fun making that podcast. Absolutely. Well, welcome both of you to Positively Gam. But I want to just ask, how are you both doing during the pandemic? Let's start with you, Jemiah. How's it going for you? It's going it's going okay actually. You know, I've learned a lot about overcoming challenges in this pandemic to be honest. I've been learning the practice of finding solutions in this pandemic. They seem to come up every day in some new form, uh new challenges internal external related to the business, related to life and really the only true lesson is on how to be creative and how to keep going. So that's what I've been focusing on and that's the the strain of of strength for me. Awesome. What about you, Ashley? I love that, Jemiah. First of all, I really love what you said because I feel similarly in that quarantine. I have been, you know, both privileged and lucky enough to continue to work and to continue to be okay. My family has some of members have contracted COVID, but so far everybody's made it. Everybody's recovering. Everybody's doing okay. For me, this has been a real practice in imagination and in my own belief in the power of imagination, because I definitely believed in the power of imagination. But this proved to me how much that one thing can change things all around you, inside and out. Yeah, so true. So true. Well, let's dive right in because structural racism, like these issues have been ongoing for us for generations. And I think that now really they're being accentuated in the pandemic. And I feel like because of the the deadly violence that we have had to deal with almost on a daily basis, police brutality has taken center stage. But we cannot, we cannot lose sight of those other issues that are debatably have a more subtle effect on the community, but just as important, like the inequities in accessing quality education, housing, quality health care. And then what we really want to discuss today is poor access to nutritional foods. And I think, Jemiah, that's where you really come in because access to food has been unequal in America for a long, long time, before the pandemic. 
But this has just deepened the problem. So, Jemiah, you're on a mission to use gardening as a way to weed out systemic racism. And let me just stop for a minute and just say the reason how I found Jemiah was I saw a wonderful piece that you did on Spectrum One with Giselle Fernandez. And I was like, I have got to talk to this young man because what you're doing is amazing. So tell me how this even came about. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I have to say, it's in the spirit of our ancestors that I am here today. And and I know that not just from my own DNA tests and finding out that my ancestors were some of the founders of the concept of sharecropping back in the Iberian Peninsula and in the Moorish, Moorish civilizations, but also in my more recent family. My grandmother, she used to grow food for her family. They had like seven or eight kids you know, up in Fresno, California, doing what they could with animals and pigs. And it was just, you know, in their blood and in their kind of work ethic to create for themselves and to sustain for and by themselves. You know, so that's that's what set me up. That's what I had on day one. You know, I don't I don't even know, you know, how, how I can ask to be blessed for more than that in terms of this mission for food. But then, you know, flash forward in my life and it came to a point in Chicago or in college when community engagement was really important to me. There was a community garden of families, some newer to this this country that were immigrants, others that were more recently added. And all these people loved good food, loved community, and introduced me to that concept of, of urban engagement through food. That shows me where all the inequities came from, because the folks who were attracted to that movement tended to be low income, tended to not have property they owned. They tended to not have jobs on paper, per se. And so that opens up so many categories of, of improvement in our society, and it starts with food. So, but, but this is the thing for me, because you, you're, you graduated from Columbia University, right? And weren't you working on Wall Street or something? How did you get from Wall Street to having a, to what, what I'm assuming was probably more financially beneficial to you and your family to your moving back to L.A. and starting a, a garden. Like, what? Well, you know, and, and, and I, was, I was a trader. That's correct. I was a trader with stocks, bonds, futures, options, mutual funds, and options on futures. Now, here's the thing about race in trading, right? Because we're going to connect all the dots. I did not earn a lot of money as a trader because I was brought in super low. So, you know, if that financial incentive even had been there, still the cultural aspect of in that of in that that financial industry is still really there. Like the the chauvinistic white male dominant space, nevertheless, irrespective of how smart or capable you can be, is still the dominant influence. And so, you know, I did what I could for a few years. And then actually what happened was my my wife, then girlfriend, we decided to sell everything we own and move to Brazil to work for a social enterprise at that point. So I got some <laughs> international experience again, you know, learning Portuguese. But it was actually really useful in learning how a social enterprise operated because now my organization, CropSwap LA, operates like a social enterprise. Uh, they say this term, triple bottom line, the idea that you can create economic value while helping the environment, while helping people. And that's what we aim to do. So a really valuable insight on how people operate in different contexts and then how we can redefine our, our culture, frankly, inside out in this moment of, of vulnerability that it's in, in this moment of opportunity that we have. 
So you live in the West Adams area of L.A., right? Yeah, that's right. And so in your backyard, you just decided to start a, a garden. Yeah, that's right. So I have a three-year-old daughter, and the idea was she was so beautiful and perfect when she came out. I couldn't imagine incrementally poisoning her throughout her life until she's no longer as beautiful. In the same way that I think about trading, you know, when you trade on a stock, the stock has one uptick if you bought it, or it had a downtick if you sold it. And it's the same thing with the food and anything else that's influencing our body. Uh, have an uptick if we put it in our body that's healthy and nutrient rich. And if we have a downtick, if we just had to get some fast food on the way somewhere. So my thing is with this movement, let's plug in that food exactly where the institutions already exist, like those restaurants, those chefs where folks are already rushing, you know, slip in our, our lettuce in there, you know, slip in our tomatoes over here, get people used to this really great food. And then eventually that's what they'll get used to and crave on their own. Because it's really, it's really sad. And I know from my own experience in, in Baltimore that, you, and you talk about it, you know, food deserts in the inner city, there's just, they don't have access to healthy, nutritious foods. And I, I know that my sister was actually involved in getting a, a community garden started in one of the areas in, in Park Heights, which is a depressed area, one of the depressed areas in Baltimore City. And she says now that they are community gardens all over. What about you, Ashley? Have, has that been your experience where you live? Because you live in Indiana, right? I live in Indiana. And I, you know, I spent about six years in, living in Brooklyn. And before that, it was 27 years in Indiana. So the Midwest is where I've been for the majority of my life. And I got to tell you, I grew up not in any kind of inner city. Okay. Like I lived on the edges of a suburb. My school was a county school. It was all black, but it was a county school. Technically, we were in the country. And when I graduated from high school, I would say from the time I was 11 until the time I was 18, we lost every grocery store within a mile of my mom's house. Every single grocery store was gone. If we needed to get groceries, we had to drive about 10 to 15 miles away to find the Kroger or something like that. They eventually got a Walmart of course, which is what happens. All the local grocery stores are gone and the Walmart comes in um, or the big box stores come in. But up until that time, we groceries, going to the grocery store was an air, like a real, we had to be ready to go. Everybody had to be in the car and able to go. My mom was a single parent of four kids, didn't have a lot of time. I grew up in the kind of food desert where it was so much easier for my mom after work to stop by Arby's than to stop by a grocery store or anything to get things to cook. And, and then also, where would she find the time to cook? And I, as an adult, as I got older, I've learned so much about my body by learning how to feed my body. Because I had, I had no real idea what my body needed or how to feed it. And even going to doctors about things like having polycystic ovary syndrome and finding out that so many young girls have polycystic ovary syndrome because of the hormones in their food. And it's one of the saddest, you know, like things to have to explain to somebody like you gave your kid the wrong milk when they were up until they were eight. And now you have a nine-year-old who's getting a menstrual cycle and growing breasts and having like 
all of these things happening. And it's incredibly sad to have that happen to your body. And I don't, I, I'm like you, Joy, I don't ever want to see that happen to anybody else again. I know that it is happening right now, but whatever we can do to mitigate that, I'm in. I'm trying to make sure we protect these kids and protect people's health and their bodies. And you actually call it food apartheid, Jemiah. Talk about that, how, how you use that terminology, Jemiah. Sure, yeah. A lot of times we hear the term food desert, and it's used as kind of an excuse. That's, that's all it is. People say, oh, it's a food desert. There's nothing there. It's like a natural occurring thing. It's a desert. We use that analogy and everyone feels metaphorically comfortable. But in truth, <laughs> it's an intentional design by, you know, folks who are like everything else, you know, those who control the, the, the food grocery stores or the policies on what can be where, like the zoning, also down to the policies of what you can grow and where you can sell it. For instance, what we're doing with Crosswalk LA is called truck gardening, where we'll grow it in one place, a front yard, and we'll sell it in a different place, like a market. So it's got to be registered there, but it's a way to leverage real estate that we don't own, kind of like a shared sharecropping system. And, you know, that's, that's what we have to do in order to take care of ourselves in a system that won't care for us. I love that terminology. I love the thought in that because I think the same thing. Deserts are naturally occurring. They're just part of the thing. And food deserts are not. (laughs) They are by design. It's on purpose. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. 
When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. The other thing I want to talk about, too, is that people always are trying to make it seem like buying organically (laughs) is not expensive. I, I, I don't understand. It absolutely is more expensive. And they're paying you, you, you have to pay extra for them to not put pesticides on your food. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> and that's the irony, because when you really grow the food in a nutrient-rich fashion, it actually has a longer shelf life than anything else out there. So, you know, the, <laughs> we're going to end up doing the total opposite. <laughs> I can't. Please keep doing what you're doing, Jamar. We need to we need to spread this on. But I think the other thing that people need to understand, just very briefly, is everything everything doesn't need to be organic, right? There, particularly foods and vegetables that have a skin on it that you're not going to eat the skin. You don't need to buy organic bananas. You don't need to buy organic oranges. So. I, I will say that is what we've been that's what we've been told. But in truth, if it's pesticide use, it's all through the plant. It's all through the the flesh, the inner parts of anything, not just on the outside. They may spray it. Yeah, they may spray it from the outside, but it seeps into the soils, it seeps in through the roots, through the skins. It's absolutely on the inside of every fruit that is used that's not organic. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I'm pet giving out false information. It's okay. It's okay. We're learning together. And that's that's the point. Yeah, well, truly, if we go back four generations in our families, what what did they know about food? They were also misinformed and mal- poorly treated in the food aspect of life. And, you know, so we have to we have to advance so that our kids and our grandkids, your kids, my daughter's kids one day know way better than we do today. Learning about hormones and the nutritional factor of what's in food and how it affects your body over the long term was such an education. I didn't realize, and I know that my mother didn't realize, she's like, you know, we're just trying to feed these kids, you know, which is what most parents are thinking about. And you don't think about the fact that these companies might be putting things into your food that over time will harm your children or and will have long-standing consequences in their bodies. And that's one one of the issues too that is is really so such a challenge for us in the black community to just understand and learn about nutrition because when I was in Baltimore and a member of my church it was Macedonia Baptist Church and I became a member of the food ministry. And we we had a food bank. And so we helped deliver food to the community. And when we would be packaging up the bags and people would come through the lines to, and they could get whatever they wanted that we had, it was really, really surprising some of the fresh vegetables that particularly the younger people, the younger women did not want and they didn't understand how to prepare it. Thing like fresh green, that was really sh- shocking to me because I was like, 
Are they just not used to seeing them fresh? So they didn't know what they, are they used to seeing them in a can? Or I didn't understand that they, and they would just pass by all the beautiful fresh spinach and kale and collards. And Jemiah might be able to answer that better than I can, but I can say from experience, I didn't know that that's what greens looked like. <laughs> I was really confused that, green, that greens didn't come with bacon on them. I'm going to just be real. I didn't know that that was a thing. Please jump in. Please jump in on that because that was that was really challenging. That was really challenging. Well, it's it's a fascinating anecdote because education comes from many forms. Part of it is how we're raised based on what we have around and have available. And then part of it is systemic. And that is to say, you know, that there aren't many kinds of vegetables at the grocery store in the first place. I know somebody, you know, in my neighborhood who's got 200 types of tomatoes on demand. Like, that's how it ought to be. So, you know, part of it is education we are raised with. The other part of it is exposure now that we're here. So, you know, those indigenous foods, those seeds from our ancestors, those that we still have an heirloom and access, that's what we need to be gaining access to. That's what we're trying with CropSwap LA. You know, getting those foods has a nutrient advantage. Oftentimes, for instance, I had this red corn that has 20% more protein than a regular yellow corn. And it's just because it's a different variety. It took the same time to grow, same energy and space. And all I did is have to eat it and put it in my face. Yeah. And uh, people are looking like, what is this? Uh, now, I've never, I've never seen red corn. I had family members. The, and, you know, when I went to college is when I really started trying different foods. And a big part of the reason why I was able to do that was because I had my food card on campus and there were different fresh options for food around campus. They weren't necessarily great, but they were more than I had ever had access to. I grew up going to my friends' houses and if my friends' parents had like fresh fruit and a bowl on a table or something like that, I was like, they're rich. Like you have to be rich for that to be, to have fresh fruit. That's what I genuinely thought. And so when I go to college, I'm coming back home and, you know, buying things at the grocery store and trying to get my grandma and my mom and my cousins to try it. Like seriously, guys, pomegranate seeds. They're so good. And my, how do you even open this? You know what I mean? How do you get them out? And being able to show them that, like introducing people to things like in my family, like to be avocado. Um, things like that, like that people just never thought to pick up or mess with at the grocery store. And people can be really, really resistant to trying new things. It's, a, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. Like, we just weren't raised like that. I guess that's the, the, the one thing that I can attribute it to is that just my mother was always, well, my mother, let's just be clear, my mother wasn't a great cook anyway. <laughs> But she would, but, but the one thing she did was she was always trying to experiment and bring us new foods to try because she felt like you have to eat three times a day, 365 days, you know, and she didn't want to be bored. Your mom had the right idea. She definitely had the right idea, even though she wasn't a great cook. She definitely had the right idea. And she was more interested in nutrition than she was in flavor. And you can be interested in both is what I'm figuring out at this point in my life. I agree. (laughs) 
Ashley, let's talk about what's what's going on with you and this lunch debt that you... Yeah, the lunch debt situation is so interesting to me because essentially what happened was that I saw a tweet. <laughs> I saw a tweet from a politician who was saying that kids don't want a free lunch, that they want dignity. <laughs> and I thought that was insane. I thought it was not just, but also grossly inaccurate. As a kid who grew up on um, free and reduced lunch programs in school, I remember what it was like. And I never felt a lack of dignity because my single mother had to fill out a form that helped me get a meal in the middle of the day. That never felt like I am not a dignified person. I felt like I am a kid and I want to eat like any child would. And I was never made to feel bad about that in my community where that was actually pretty common. But then I got accepted into a gifted program. And as part of that gifted program, I got shipped to a different school a couple times a week. And it was a school that was predominantly white and it was a school that was predominantly wealthy. And the lunch staff there had no idea what to do when it was time for me to eat lunch. It's like everything broke down when they realized they had a student who needed, who who was on free or reduced lunch and that I was not actually going to be paying them money for my lunch that day. And it was the first time I ever felt any kind of shame around the fact that I needed to eat and I did not come from money. It was the first time that happened. And seeing this tweet from this politician talking about kids wanting dignity more than they wanted to eat in the middle of the day rang so false that I felt like I had to do something and talk about what I saw happening. So so they actually I'm confused. They they sent you to another school that didn't provide the free lunch. They provide they provided it because they were part of the district. They just hadn't ever had a student who needed it until I showed up, <laughs> and so they had no idea how to help me in that moment. And they were so concerned with the fact that I didn't have this dollar and ten cents for my lunch that like they had pulled out a red binder, like the lunch lady held up the whole line to pull out a red binder and look up what she needed to do because what she really thought she was, you don't have money, then you don't get lunch. And that wasn't the case for me. And it was a big deal. And it really, like, it became a really shameful moment. And through, like, seeing this tweet and being like, this is ridiculous. And, you know, I, I then found out that there was such a thing as student lunch debt, that kids across the country were being punished because they were eating lunch. Like, they could no longer, there were schools where they could no longer turn kids away and say that you can't have lunch. So instead of saying you can't have lunch, they started a debt for the child, like a debt account. And if the debt isn't paid, then they can tell you that you can't have lunch or they have to offer you an alternative lunch. An alternative lunch doesn't have to be anything. For some of these schools, an alternative lunch for a kid were two slices of white bread and a cold piece of cheese. And then they weren't allowed to have a milk 
They could have water from a faucet and people and the lunch, the lunch staff would give them cup. Like basically like you get a cup and you get this cold cheese sandwich. And if that's not enough to sustain you for the rest of your school day, then too bad. Talk to your parents. It, there were kids who were being not allowed to go to dances because they had lunch debt, can't go to prom because you have lunch debt. There were kids who I found out were being told they weren't going to be allowed to walk at graduation because they still owed a lunch debt. And the idea disgusted me so much that I'm just the kind of person where I don't really like to complain online unless I also offer like some way for people to do something about what they're upset about or about what I'm upset about. So I just said, hey, why don't you call your local school and see what these lunch debts are if you have a school that has lunch debt and pay them off. Because a lot of times the amount that it took to pay off these lunch debts, like we're thinking about, you know, man, kids not being able to eat, kids not being able to go to their homecomings and dances and not being able to graduate. This must be big debt. These debts ranged anywhere from five to $50. <laughs> and so, you know, people took it seriously. Like, I mean, so many people I think were astounded by the idea that there is such a thing as a lunch debt that they called just being curious and found these debts and just started paying them off. And the next thing I knew it was a movement going across Twitter, going across social media where people were saying, hey, let's call a local school today and take care of these lunch debts. Schools were reaching out to me and saying that somebody left my name, but they'd shown up with a check and sat it down and said, I want to pay off all the lunch debt at this school. And it wasn't a check for me, but it was just the idea had spread so far that by the end of it, as far as I could track over the past years that this has been happening, it probably paid off across the country over $300,000 in lunch debts um, for students so that they can just be a student, be a kid like every kid should be allowed to be. Wow. I, I I never heard of that. I don't I don't know if we have like lunch debt in in Maryland. That that's interesting. We didn't have it. You know, I called local schools when I was living in Brooklyn. I called immediately to all the schools around me and they were quick to say every child here gets a meal. Every child gets a meal and they do not have lunch debt. It was it depends on the school, it depends on the district. Got it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, but it was terrifying. I mean, it was the idea that we could put children, children into debt because they eat a meal in the middle of their school day is not only heartbreaking. I think about these kids who are already thinking of themselves as saddled with debt, with debt. And debt is a means to control, like, scarcity as an idea is a means to control. When you were talking a little bit earlier about people helping each other in community and finding these things, you know, before I left New York, one of the things that I noticed was there are a couple churches in my neighborhood and the lines for their food bank options were getting just, I mean, wrapped around the block. The, the voting lines were wrapped around the block, but before that, the, the food bank lines were wrapped around the block over and over and over. And you know, one time I, one of my neighbors sat one of those boxes outside my door just in case I needed it. And I took it inside and I opened it to see what was inside. 
And one of the first things I saw was a letter from a politician essentially saying, you got this box because of me. And it really messed with me because I think that's when it came home that this is the same thing that we're doing to these kids. It's already getting them into the scarcity mindset so that they really don't think about the fact that they are worth more and that their value is so far beyond something as insidious as a lunch debt. I just have to say, when when politicians use food as power that directly, it's not moral. It is true. Food is power. And you still can use it that way. But don't do it that way. Food has been used as a weapon through slavery and until and then since. And if we can turn it around and use food as a tool for liberation, then we'll eliminate that as a weapon of choice altogether. And school debt has obviously been a real problem. And in California, Governor uh, Newsom signed a law in 2019 that mandates that all students, all students are entitled to a school lunch, whether they have the funds to pay or not. If this is new to you, because it was new to me, that that is one of the things that you can do is you can call your local schools and find out if something like this even exists. You know what? You know what's really cool, Gammy. One of the best things that came out of this for me, there were quite a few people who I, I, I've interacted with online. I don't know in real life, but like we, those are just the interactions we've had. Who let me know that even though they don't have children, they join their local school boards to make sure that when these decisions are made, they're in the room and they get to express what people really want to see. Nobody wants to see a child hungry and nobody wants to see a district, definitely not a school district, attempt to punish a parent via their child, which a lot of times this is, well, why don't the parents just pay it off? And it's like, how could that be the child's problem? How can we possibly make that a child's problem, whether or not their parents have the interests or the resources? Because that's really what it comes down to. Either their parents don't have the resources or they have a parent who doesn't have the interest. And that both situations are sad, but we are not going to solve them by having hungry children in school. We're not going to solve it by having kids who can't learn because they can't think because their stomachs are rumbling. Right. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Okay, so tell me about starting your garden and how that evolved into Crop Swap LA. Yeah, well, I have to say my garden started off really small. And it expanded because I realized what was possible. That's exactly what's happening with CropSwap LA. It was just a few gardeners who were sharing their extra things and having what we were calling crop swaps in my backyard every month. And that evolved into a farmer's market that we opened. And, you know, then free food we were given during COVID to give away to the community. And now our goal and our true objective is to grow food on unused spaces. So that can be front yards, a lot of front yards in Los Angeles just being wasted with grass and space. It can be concrete spaces like a parking lot or a driveway that's being unused. We know how to grow food on tables and trays that's high nutrient rich and amazing. And so we're doing that and we're putting agreements together right now around town as well as larger scale projects. So we're hoping to convert a large empty space into a park and agriculture space. So my goal really is, you know, to scale up just as nature does as it scales down. There's something in the Tao that says that the the little is just as important as the big. And that's how I think this movement can move. You know, I think I want to get even a little bit more basic than that, Jemiah, because you really have to know what you're doing. Because my mother was a master gardener, okay? And she had a beautiful flower garden and vegetables. And it's funny because when she passed, like she she had everything like a a it all plotted out how we were supposed to maintain the garden and all of that. It's all written down. It was all in in like a, a blueprint. We were not able to follow that because nobody was as passionate about it as she was. But my sister, who has taken over that property, she does she does do a bit and she has become a master gardener but she doesn't I'm sorry Karen you don't compare to mommy <laughs> but she has done better than than most of us 
But you you really do have to have some knowledge and understanding about how to grow things. How did you get that? Like, did you just learn from your grandmother or did you take a course or are your neighbors coming together and sharing information about, oh, this works and that doesn't work? I mean, like simple things like the, what is it that you, that helps feed the soil? What is it? Compost. Yeah, composting. Like, my, the first time my sister tried that, like there was a bunch of mice in there that scared her to, to death because she wasn't doing it right. You know, I mean, I guess her containers were wrong or something. But, you know, I mean, like that really takes some some investigation, I would say, and some dedication. Thank you. Thank you. It takes some trial and error for sure. For my journey, it all began intellectually with, with botany because how plants work is fascinating to me, how they can just take sunlight and take this water and take this earth and somehow you have fruit and life from it and wood and structure. You know, it's fascinating. And so I've always been looking into retiring and becoming a botanist one day. And when all this opportunity came up, I've just been delving even deeper into, you know, why plants do certain things for the purpose of growing food. Also, you know, sharing with people like fascinating things, why certain flowers are certain colors and they open at certain times of the day. You know, I love that stuff. And then the real use of it in our culture, almost like the return to nature. Everybody wants that right now. They've been kind of wanting it for a while. And that's where the passion comes from technically. Then the trial and error of like doing it for sure. I've got mice in my compost right now. I think <laughs> that's why I laughed. <laughs> that's the whole thing about a compost. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I, I mess with that. Yeah, there's a better way to do it than we're doing it right now. But but professionally, when we get going. <laughs> I do have to say, Jemiah, though, that really, the way you talk about it, though, it it makes me want to dream a bigger dream for myself in terms of like what might be possible and what I can do and how I can help people. Like even now, I'm like, yo, Crop Swap Indie, we can make this happen. Like we can make this work. I'm thinking about all the land around here and I'm like, now wait a damn minute. I know I can put some tomatoes or something. Like, and just talking about it and having the option, like it's like what you're doing to me is you're changing a mindset and a perception about what can be possible, not just in terms of how we feed ourselves, but then also how we come together in community and share with one another. You know, it's that, it's that idea of not just like having the, like anybody like grow crops and be like, yeah, I have all these crops and all this power, but then acknowledging the shared responsibility to your neighbors and to the people who live among you. It, it's like, it's not that I've never thought of that before, but I've never, I don't think I really believe it could work the way it's working for CropSwap. I think I doubted it. Thank you. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault for doubting it. We've been fed a false sense of scarcity in this country. There's a false sense of scarcity with food and nature that's, that's, that's untrue. In truth, what we have is abundance in nature. It gives so much. One apple tree will give you way more than you want for like three seasons. And you'll be like, someone please take the, take the damn apples. And so like feeding off of that abundance creates job opportunities for people. So there's an economic sustainability aspect to it all. And everyone ends up being happy. So all it needed was a couple of dots to be connected. But first, for a couple of dots to be disconnected in our society, we needed it all to break and fall apart. This whole um, supply chain crisis with food that comes up every time there's a lockdown 
you know, that's a real issue. And meanwhile, the only food we may have available is not the best food. So here we go, a chance to connect the correct dots. And I'm really excited to, to be sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this to Jemai, because I think about, OK, in the pandemic, people are losing, you know, their jobs. So they don't have a lot of money, right? To even go to the supermarket to shop, you're not working, but what you do have is time, right? You have time. How do you start your own garden that would end up filling some of the void that you have as far as your lack of food for your own family, right? Because you you don't have to have Because I'm thinking, okay, well, everybody doesn't even have a yard. But there is some gardening that you can do, right? Like rooftop and, you know, on your decks. And so can you do more than grow just herbs, though? Because you always hear people talking about an herb garden. But if you're talking about being able to garden, to grow food, to supplement, let's just say to start to supplement what you can't buy in the grocery store, because economically it might actually be helpful for you to grow your, to start growing your own food, right? Indeed. Not just more healthful, but economically. That's right. It's so many, so many ways. Economically, it multiplies itself and depends on what you're growing. You could replant it and eat it again. Yeah. So what is, what is something that, that you would suggest that somebody start with? Would it be, would it be some kind of greens or lettuce or sweet potatoes? Yeah. 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 I love those. All those are good options. They're all easy to grow. Really? Sweet potato. Super easy to grow. And you don't need a garden for that. You can do that in a pot. Yeah. There's a way to do it in like a crate, but I think, you know, something to start out with could be like lettuces. And one thing that we're going to be doing at CropSwap LA is this vertical tower soon that has allow allow you to grow on multiple levels and it just stands up on the wall somewhere, waters itself. Something like that doesn't take a lot of space. We also have these trays. So people have a lot of options that they can get started with. But food wise, I'd say, you know, salads are things that grow fast and in nutrient rich soil, it'll grow and harvest every single month. So watered well and well sunlight. But generally, I think you can also grow more than just leafy greens in these things and and in your small spaces. Things like beets. Beets are huge once they're really grown well. Yeah, something chunky that you want to chop up and like crunch on. And, you know, other things that are that are viney, such as squashes, all they need to be done is plugged in and they go off and grow over there. So, uh, you know, you can really take advantage of space like a balcony I've seen people do that really well with heavy squashes hanging off those things. Pumpkins, too. Pumpkins, you can almost grow on accident. Like you really get like you really almost can. Like with pumpkins, you can. I've my a friend of mine, Daniel Jose Older, another writer. He threw some pumpkin seeds and hit in the corner of his backyard, I think about a year and a half ago. And he had huge pumpkins. He had thrown them into the corner. And it's like, like, but like, I was like, pumpkins, you can almost grow. You got to watch them, <laughs> but you, you can almost grow them on accident. Like there are quite a few things that I think 
we don't necessarily think of as like growing it and eating it. And then if you grow it, do you know how to prepare it if you've always like bought it at the store or something like that? But we are in the information age. And there are people out there like Jemiah, and there are TikTokers, Instagrammers, Twitterers, YouTubers, all kinds of people, foragers, constantly showing people how to garden, how to take care of plants, how to prepare what they have in the garden, how to store what they have in the garden. Here in Indiana, I took a class learning how to can, freeze, um, and dry food for like winters that, you know... It's not anything I'm going to need anytime soon, hopefully. But if I do, it feels good to know it's there. It feels good to know I can make my own apple butters or jams or scoops or stews and, and store them for a long time. And I think that's another thing that people don't necessarily think of is like when you get that bounty or even when you get a bounty from somebody else who's trying to get rid of a little bit of their bounty, there are ways that like you can make that fresh immediately, but there are also ways to preserve it in the long term that you can keep it for a really long time. And not only does that help from an economic standpoint, but it's also a really good way to make sure that you know what's going into your food. But that's, again, takes me back to crop swap because I'm still thinking about inner city folk that may not have access to the internet and, you know, classes and all that kind of stuff. But at least at crop swap, you're, there's a, you know, you're interacting with face-to-face human beings who are able to, you know, share and give you that information and tell you, oh, well, this is, Callaloo, I heard you talking about Callaloo, you know, and this is how you prepare it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're also taking over front yards to manage them ourselves so that uh, we can be economically in sync with the homeowner and make money together from their yard. Talk to me about that. How, how did you incorporate or integrate economy with community so that there's some profitability? going on. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's a couple of like very narrow passageways we've been able to find to link all this together. It's so true. It's like basically, you know, using these front yards, we're going to be offering to the homeowner a percentage of the percentage of the money we earn from the food there that they can take home every month. And we'll pay the extra water because basically the system we're being we're going to be installing is water recycling using the same water hundreds of times before it's depleted just to grow food. And it'll, it'll also catch rainwater when it, when it falls. So it's rainwater harvesting, rainwater recycling, aquaponics, because it'll have a fish element to it that uses its fish poops as a nitrate to basically make the, the food healthier. And it'll be automated irrigation. So basically the food will just grow and our team will come by to harvest, maintain, package the goods, sell it, and give the, the homeowner a statement of their income. Jemiah, I think I... And, I... and I just want to add, too, that these front yard installations, we're doing them on a sliding scale. So for folks that can afford to have it installed, they may. But for folks that can't, we've got some grant money right now, and we're going to keep getting more grant money so that we can put these in clusters in low-income communities, manage them efficiently ourselves, and do it for people that need it themselves. And I have this concept that's called local nutrient transfer. I was just getting ready to ask you about that. Ah, yeah, that's cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that that term, because that's a phrase that you kind of 
came up with, right? Yeah, the idea of keeping the local nutrient transfer idea of like keeping those nutrients that are under your exact feet into your exact body. And that's a right that we should all claim. Because what will happen otherwise is we'll grow a bunch of good food in low-income neighborhoods and sell it in the high-income neighborhoods and call ourselves successful. But that's not success. Success is when our children, our grandmothers, our widows, our, our people that need it, get it from where they are. And there's no economic, excuse me, there's no environmental cost of transportation. And, and that works much better. So, so that's, that's the goal. You're going to make me holler, to be perfectly honest. It's been a couple times sitting here where you're talking that I really wanted to say glory. And I didn't, but I felt it. <laughs> I didn't say it, but I felt it. My goodness. It's just the thought and the intentionality, to be perfectly honest. Like that's what so many people want to do good. They really, really do. But they get it in their mind that there's like an A and B to getting the good. And the truth of the matter is it's always actually an A to Z. And you got to stop at B and think about what you're doing. You got to stop at C and thinking about what you're doing. And is it helping the right people? And is it still in line with the goals that you had at the beginning? And just like that clarity of intention from, from inception of the idea to the result that the community actually sees is so hard to get right that it's like, this is, it's like a testimony. It's really like you're giving a testimony. Yeah. And we, we see and hear the, the passion that you, you have about this crop swap and, and just about the earth and growing and gardening. I, I feel like I'm missing something in, in, in my own life. I really do. And you're a perfect example, Jemiah, of that when people kind of like struggling now and you always hear people talking about what is my purpose, you know, and not being able to, and not knowing what their purpose in life is. And I feel like really you have found your purpose. and. It, it's a perfect example. <laughs> I was one of those folks. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure you don't feel that way now. No, not a way. I know exactly which direction <laughs> to go. <laughs> you're a perfect example of how when you're doing something just for money, a lot of times it's just not fulfilling. It's so true. You know, and yeah, and you are really a shining light of that. Thank you. So, so congratulations for finding your purpose. Thank you. It was not easy and it was not quick. And a lot of people had to be patient with me along the way. <laughs> yeah. Now that Jill Biden is soon to be the first lady. Do you think that she would as an educator, address any of these issues as far as food and for the students? I certainly hope she does. I definitely hope she does. You know, I felt like when First Lady Michelle Obama was in the White House and she really sort of led the charge for trying to get more nutritious foods into schools and also trying to get people to talk about gardening and how to like feed yourself in that way. I think that that would be a fantastic notion for Dr. Biden to continue. I don't see it being a thing that she wouldn't do, to be perfectly honest, like just knowing her track record and how she has 
been really vocal about the need for education in a variety of ways in this country, I think this would be such a great goal for her to put on her list as first lady over the next four to eight years. That would not only be... I think like this really fantastic way to show a continuing care for this topic, it would also be a great way for the Biden administration in and of itself to show its commitment to the progress of Black communities and definitely of lower income communities and places where these kinds of lessons are desperately needed. Absolutely. Because we do need to make this clear that this is not just a Black issue. No. Yeah. It's an issue for anyone of, you know, and that falls into the lower economics status. So as we wind down, we're going to get ready to roll out of here. But I want to mention just a few organizations in the community that people can donate to or use as a resource for accessing food. Here in L.A., we want to check out Lunch on Me by founder Lorea Gaston. Lunch on Me is a nonprofit dedicated to ending starvation while providing opportunities to enrich the mind, body, and spirit of L.A.'s homeless community. And of course, we cannot forget about Crop Swap L.A. Moving on, Soul Fire Farm in New York City. Soul Fire Farm is an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. A shout out to my hometown in Baltimore, Maryland, Macedonia Baptist Church. They have a food bank there. To find a local food bank in your area, you can go to feedingamerica.org. Any other things before we get to our when you like to know section? Is there any other points that you all want to make before we end? Yeah. Jemiah? I wanted to mention earlier in terms of reaching low-income communities and getting good veggies there, we have a partnership with the CropSwap app. That's an app where you can see a map uh, where farmers are sending and sending their CSA vegetable boxes directly into the city and you can buy it at your doorstep. Okay. So is that something that we, okay, because technologically challenged. <laughs> it's cool. It's just an app. It's a... So is it, it's an app, like I can just go on my phone where the app store is and look up CropSwap. Yep. All one word. Check it out. <laughs> it's pretty easy. It's pretty user-friendly. I downloaded it just to play with it a little bit because I knew we were going to be here today. And it is very user-friendly if it's something that people are interested in. Is there anything else that you think that we could do as a community to work towards changing the, changing how we eat, changing food availability, nutritious food? What, what is it that we can be doing as a community, do you think? There's one thing you can do right away. We have a petition right now on petition.org that is to convert a space that's currently concrete in front of a Kaiser Permanente building into 50% agriculture and 50% parkland. So it's something that we're proposing with the Neighborhood Land Trust. We're in talks with the city council leadership and we're in talks with the leadership at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, we've got about 1,300 signatures already. If anyone wants to go on and you can find the petition on petition.org or on my Instagram link or somehow we'll make sure you have that available and please sign that petition. That's the first thing you can do. Any final points for you, Ashley? 
It's almost weird to bring him up, but Guy Fieri, Flavortown restaurant owner, one of the things he says that I really desperately agree with is that it is so important to teach your kids how to cook. It is so important to teach them how to feed themselves uh, because not only does that take some of the pressure off of you, but it also encourages them to be cognizant of what they put in their bodies, how they like food, the flavors that they like, and be able to prepare food for themselves. It is a huge skill that not enough young people especially, I think, have, is that they don't know how to prepare food for themselves. And so they feel like when they eat, it's all reactionary. It's just what's available, not necessarily what's good and what feels good to me. So it's a life skill. Teach kids how to cook. Teach them about their bodies and how to pay attention to what's going in. Don't make it weird. Don't make them feel like they're going to get fat you know, and use words like that, but just say, you know, does that feel good to you after you eat that? Does it taste good? And does it feel good? And I never, nobody ever taught me to think about whether or not food felt good to my body. Yeah. Good point, Ashley. Good point. Thank you for that. Both are doing some amazing things. I'm so glad to have talked to both of you. I'm telling you. Now it's time for the segment, Wouldn't You Like to Know, where you answer three rapid-fire questions with the first phrase that comes to your mind. So, Ashley, we're going to start with you. What book or books are you reading right now? Mm. Oh, my gosh, that's so wild, because I'm actually reading a book called Fearing the Black Body. (laughs) about fat phobia and where that comes from. And that's a big part of the nutrition conversation, I think, is that we need to talk about what feels good versus what you think is just going to make you look small. What about you, Jemaya? What are you reading right now? I'm reading Powernomics by Claude Anderson. It's a book that uh, discusses plan for Black America to al- align our assets and our, our energies to move forward and improve. It's actually part of a book club that I helped start through through Bro Capital. It's called the Black Men's Library. We just started it during the pandemic. We're only reading books from Black men and African men for ourselves and learning about and spending time with ourselves to learn what's been done and tried in the past and what we can do and try in the future. So right now it's a second series. The first one was Marcus Garvey's Philosophies and uh, again now is Powernomics. Next is a really exciting one. It's called Nutricide. And Nutricide is a discussion about how food is used as a, a poison, as a weapon. And I can't wait to get to read about that. So yeah, that's the uh, the Black Men's Library. You, okay. Question number two. What's one thing you want to get off your chest, Ashley? <gasps> oh, man. Stuff I want to get off my chest. I think the thing I most want to get off my chest is that a lot of what we're seeing in the country right now that we try to pass off as quote unquote craziness or chaos is actually emotional breakdowns that people are expressing. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable for their actions, but it does mean that like people don't just have to be crazy. Sometimes people are just expressing a world of pain and somebody's going to have to address it at some point, hopefully then. What about you, Jemiah? One thing you want to get off your chest? I want to get it off my chest that there are too many damn helicopters around Los Angeles. I don't know who's comfortable with that, who asked for that, who approved it, why they're there. Do they know why they're up there? Is there enough happening down here for them to be up there? I actually feel you on that one, too, because 
like by my house around where I live, there's this helicopter that's there all the time. I'm like, what are you looking for? We're in the mountains. What's going on? Ashley, what's a motto you live by? Nobody can be summed up by the best or worst thing they've ever done. We're all a lot more than that. That's a good one. Say that again. No, nobody can be summed up by the best or worst thing they've ever done. We're all made up of so much more than that. And we all make mistakes. Every single person. If you're a human being, you've made a mistake. If you're a human being, you're going to make mistakes up until the day you die. The best thing you can do is learn how to give a good apology and process forgiveness within yourself so that you can offer it to others. And try to do better the next time. Okay. When you know better, do better. What about you, Jemiah? What's a motto you live by? Uh, the phrase I live by that comes to mind is success is as dangerous as failure because at either point of the ladder, whether you're at the top or the bottom, it's shaky on either end. And so that just reminds me that when I feel successful or if I feel like I've, I've hit some challenges, to remind myself to put myself back in the middle and remember where I came from and what the goal is to, to rebalance and to not expect anything from either success or failure because the outcome is truly indeterminate. Thank you both. What, what a pleasure and what, what an education it was to talk to both of you. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Big pleasure. You too. Thank you. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Please let the audience know where we can find you both on social media. Jemiah, you first. All right. So I'm Jemiah Hargens, and you can find me as Black Super Dad on Instagram. I'm the only Black Super Dad with no hashes or anything. And you can go to www.cropswapla.com to learn more about our movement. Thank you. You can find me on Twitter at iSmashFizzle, on Instagram as SmashFizzle, or at my website, which is just AshleyCFord.com. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. So these are my takeaways from my conversation with Jemiah and Ashley. Number one, growing and planting your own garden can be healing for the mind as well as the body. Use your creativity and imagination to find solutions for challenges and help you move forward. Number two, sometimes you just have to take a chance and try something new. You'll be surprised how foods that are good for you can taste good too. Number three, kids can't focus on learning if they're hungry. Teach your kids how to cook as a life skill so they learn how to take care of themselves and their bodies. Number four, turns out food debt is a real problem within the educational system and it shouldn't be. Reach out to your local schools to find out if this is a problem in your area and how you can help. Check out the West Adams Farmer's Market open every Sunday from nine to one here in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review the episode. Follow me on my Instagram at Gammy Norris to share with me your thoughts on the episode. I'm here, I'm talking, and I'm listening. And as always, folks, stay grateful.
Positively Gam is produced by Westbrook Audio. Executive producers, Adrian Banfield-Norris, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Amanda Brown, and Fallon Jethro. Co-executive producer, Sim Hoti. Segment producer, Ash Francis. Associate producer, Erica Ron. Editor and mixer, Calvin Bayless. Positively Gam is in partnership with Art19. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.